So good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Heart Success Podcast. Uh, we've taken a different approach today. We will be doing a video in addition to the usual audio that we do. This video will be available for you to see on our YouTube page, which goes by Heart Success Team. And you can find the link on our Twitter or Facebook page as well. We will be discussing a case of cardiogenic shock. To discuss this case with us today, we have a panel of uh, two heart failure cardiologists and an international structural cardiologist with us today. Dr. Daniel Sims is the director of the CCU at Montefiore Medical Center in Bronx, New York. We have Dr. Renee Alvarez, who is a professor of medicine and chief of cardiology at Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Alec Wisniewski is interventional structural. He leads a cardiogenic shock program at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And then to present the case today, we have Rachna Kataria. She is a third-year fellow at Montefiore Medical Center, very interested in heart failure training uh, next year. So welcome, everybody. Yeah, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Morning, everyone. Good morning. Mac, should I go ahead? Yes, Rachna, why don't you start us off in that? <clears throat> right, and everyone sees my screen and presentation. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right, so the case that I'm presenting today is that of a 30-year-old woman, no past medical history. Um, she presented to the emergency room after having recently visited the Dominican Republic. Um, she was brought to the emergency room after a witnessed episode of syncope, which was preceded by 24 hours of chest pain, for which she did not seek medical care. Her vital signs upon arrival were blood pressure of 82 over 75, so she was hypotensive. Her heart rate was 63 beats per minute. Um, she was afebrile and uh, tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 30. This was her presenting EKG. Um, if we look carefully, she has a complete heart block on this EKG. There's no, there's more uh, P's than uh, QRS's and no real, um, there's a dissociation. Um, and also what stands out is that she has an anti, she has ST elevations in the anterolateral leads. Um, another thing that stands out is that there's really low voltage across all of the leads. She also had an X-ray upon arrival, and uh, on that X-ray, we can see prominence of the pulmonary vasculature with the uh, cephalization of the vessels. So, um, yeah. so I think at that point, uh, Rachan, I think maybe we should just ask the panel, based on the hemodynamics they've seen, the EKG that we have and the X-ray, what people are thinking. So if I go to Dr. Sims first, uh, if you encounter a case like this and you've been, you've been called for an urgent eval, of course, in the ER for a patient like this, what's your thought process in these situations? Sure. So uh, it's a patient with chest pain who's got a uh, severe injury pattern uh, in the anterolateral uh, distribution uh, on her EKG. So you have to be thinking about uh, uh, coronary ischemia and myocardial infarction, but she's only 30 years old. Uh, so typical coronary atherosclerotic heart disease, while not impossible, is, is much less prevalent. So, you know, could this be someone with a coronary dissection? Could this be someone uh, who's had a coronary embolism or some hypercoagulable disorder? Um, but uh, uh, she's also in shock, as it seems. You know, her blood pressure is um, uh, quite low. 
it's a little bit unusual, but not impossible uh, to have the uh, complete heart block here. So you have to be thinking, could something else be going on, uh, such as uh, you know, myocarditis, uh, to be causing this? You know, the the, um, uh, the huge injury current, but by the same token, the the low voltage in someone with a um, uh, a normal size cardiac silhouette. Uh, all of these things, uh, something not quite typical of garden variety coronary disease is um, uh, concerning to me, but we, we have to exclude that first and foremost. She needs to get to the cardiac catheterization lab out of the emergency room quickly uh, to look at her coronaries first and then do, uh, if, they're, if the coronaries are angiographically normal, then do other studies. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to ask, Renee, if you go back to the x-ray Rachna on this situation. I know the timing of this, uh, and this conversation, we're not gonna make it about COVID, I promise everybody that, but but the timing of this does matter. And Renee, do you think if you encounter a case like this today in the ER, are you thinking of something more than just beyond the STEMI um, that that otherwise we would have a year ago? Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, nice presentation so far. So uh, a couple of things, and Dr. Sims sort of uh, nicely summed up a lot of the thought process. But, you know, uh, I think the EKG is not classic for a STEMI. Uh, there is an injury current, uh, but there are no reciprocal changes. I think the, the fact that there's third-degree heart block and uh, low voltages, like Dr. Sims uh, pointed out, uh, make me think about some sort of other etiology that may mimic uh, a STEMI like uh, myocarditis, like Dr. Sims had mentioned, uh, or another, uh, some other cause. Um, I think today, um, if this patient presented to any emergency room, you would have to be very worried about COVID, especially since her visit to the Dominican Republic, where uh, COVID has been endemic and uh, running rampant throughout the country. So, uh, you have to think about COVID, I think, probably before she goes to the cath lab or as she is going to the cath lab should be COVID tested. Uh, but like Dr. Sims said, I think that uh, getting her to the cath lab very quickly uh, becomes very important in the management of this patient. So thanks. Thanks. Rachna, you could uh, move. I think she went to the cath lab. Yeah. Right. So um, she did go to the cath lab. Uh, she had a coronary angiogram there with no significant coronary artery disease. Um, hemodynamics uh, showed that she had elevated biventricular filling pressures, although the right left-sided pressures were quite much higher. So her RA pressure was nine. Her PA pressures were 43 over 31 with a VEG pressure of 28. Her PA sat was 50% and her thick cardiac index was 1.8. Uh, blood pressure at this time, just to remind everyone, was about 82 over 75 millimeters of mercury. Yeah. So I think this is a really great point because I think while, you know, we're always consulted in this case, the person who's right there doing all this is really someone like Alec who gets the call, who, who's, this is a STEMI alert, and, and he's there in the cath lab looking at these hemodynamics. So Alec, I just want to get your thought process on what you're thinking at this point, this is a 30-year-old lady, no coronary disease, clearly looks like in cardiogenic shock based on the information we have. Um, of course, I don't, we don't have end organ function yet, but that's sort of where we're going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you know, most interventionists would agree if you have a young patient with these kind of concerning numbers, one of the first things that you do is and you involve the heart team and specifically the, uh, our heart failure colleagues to uh, 
to help with the management of these of this patient. Um, I think one of the most important things that you can do when you have a set of numbers like this is to assess uh, the function of both ventricles. Uh, so obviously her, her LV uh, is struggling. She is in uh, shock <clears throat> or at minimum a low output uh, state. Um, but her RV looks like it's struggling as well. You know, her PA pulsatility is, looks like around one and a half uh, or less. Um, and her cardiac power, which is another uh, important marker that can help you decide the next steps, is probably around 0.5 to 0.6. Uh, so I think it's, it's synthesis of a lot of information. It's risk stratifying the patient uh, based on the numbers that you have and determining, you know, when you start thinking about the next steps, uh, do I need to support the LV? Do I need to support the RV? Do I need to support uh, both? Um, and then involving the, uh, the heart team, the shock team, whatever is available you know, at your institution early uh, to start uh, uh, making the decisions because a lot of the choices of, of what kind of support this patient ends up getting uh, will depend on uh, the, the ultimate destination. You know, if this is a patient you're trying to recover, if this is a patient you're trying to bridge to advanced therapies. So I think all those considerations come into play uh, as soon as you have the, uh, the right heart numbers. And since we do have a heart team here, we don't have a surgeon, but we have the rest of the heart team here. Um, when it comes to what we're going to do next, and if we're thinking about support, what are, what are people's thoughts on inotropes, pressors, mechanical support, and what sort of helps you make that decision in this, in this case? I'll just put it out to the whole panel. Sure. So, you know, in the acute setting here, um, I, I'm a big proponent of mechanical circulatory support. Uh, so we, so I still think there's a role for intraortic balloon pumping uh, in patients. We, we're still pretty poor at predicting who's going to respond. Some patients respond beautifully, others uh, not, not at all. Um, and the uh, risk profile is, uh, is pretty good. Um, but um, uh, the patient's also in heart block, and so rhythm is important, uh, particularly with tachycardic rhythms, but also with the bradycardics, you can uh, have less than ideal uh, balloon pumping. So it also depends on what your institution has. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate to practice at an institution where uh, we have multiple mechanical circulatory support devices available, uh, impella of all different kinds, uh, percutaneous heart pump uh, is under uh, investigation, uh, VA ECMO 24 hours a day, um, right-sided support with uh, right-sided impella and, and uh, uh, the tandem heart would be the Protect Duo. Uh, many places only have one support device. They may not have it at all hours and other hospitals may not have any support devices and only you have uh, ionotropic therapy or uh, even vasopressors. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're in an emergency room or facility where you don't have support, you know, you try to start with dobutamine um, and levothed norepinephrine, uh, vasopressin um, uh, if necessary to uh, not uh, vasoconstrict the pulmonary vasculature because this RV is suffering. Uh, but uh, I would want something um, uh, mechanical if I could. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that's a very good point, Dr. Sims. I think. Um, you know, in a young woman like this, you really want to take full control and you want to do what, uh, because this is a woman that's either going to recover or is going to be bridged to some sort of advanced therapeutic option. And uh, you really want to take full control. I, I think uh, the important point is uh, if you're not a center that is equipped to completely support the circulation that 
this patient gets transferred as soon as possible to a hub in your system or a uh, hospital in your city that can deal with this and can rescue this patient if necessary with full circulatory support. But I think inotropes still play a role. I think, uh, like you said, dobutamine with some beta agonism may improve the chronotropic state of the heart, the inotropic state of the heart, and may help the patient. Um, so, um, But I think the important thing about uh, hemodynamics is that you think about the hemodynamic uh, uh, effect that you want to have with either your inotropes or your mechanical devices, and if you don't achieve that, within a certain time frame that you need to escalate or move on. I think those are important points that you made, Dr. Sims. Thank you. Those are great points. And, you know, there's clearly an element of biventricular issues here with the PA pulsatility being as low as really eight and then clearly the wedge pressure and the index being low. So, so Rashna, you could tell us what happened next. So what happened next was that some of her laboratory uh, work came back and as you can see that she did have evidence of um, an elevated creatinine, although we did not have a baseline at this time. Um, her AST was disproportionately elevated as compared to her ALT. Her white count was 23,000 and she had a low platelet count of 112,000. And as for her cardiac biomarkers, um, her troponin I was 42.5, so quite elevated. We did have, and I'm just using one um, significant clip from her um, 2D echo uh, passed on a long axis where we clearly see that she definitely has depressed LV systolic function um, with some degree of, some amount of um, tercardial effusion there. I don't know if anyone else wants to make any comment before I move on. Yeah, just the, um, the myocardium itself looks a bit thick. Um, and in the setting of the, the low voltage, uh, you wonder, you know, is it infiltrated with something? So not necessarily infiltrative disease, but myocardial edema. Uh, so that, you know, really, you know, makes me think again uh, that this is, a, you know, a myocarditis process. And because now, you know, we have evidence of end organ dysfunction, she's in shock. Uh, you know, this, this really looks like fulminant myocarditis. Thank you, Dr. Sims. So, um the decision was made to place an impeller CP at that point. And while she was in the cath lab, she developed ventricular tachycardia, which was followed by a PEA arrest. Um, she was resuscitated, had to be intubated at that point, and a VA ECMO was placed. And this is when this hospital called Montefiore Medical Center to have the patient transferred over for exactly the things that we just discussed, uh, whether she'll end up needing some sort of um, uh, therapy um, in terms of durable mechanical support or even transplant. Um, so they called over Montefiore um, Medical Center. Uh, they also placed the TVP given the complete heart block and she was paced at about 65 beats per minute uh, from there on. So, you know, if I'll put it out again to the panel, uh, you know, we're lucky that this is a center that has the ability to put somebody who had a cardiac arrest in the cath lab on VA ECMO, you know, we're not always that lucky. Uh, you're getting this call for a transfer for a patient over to your ICU. How do you prepare your team for an incoming patient like this? And what are you thinking next uh, of, of what you would be doing as soon as this patient arrives to your center? Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll ask Alec and Renee and Dan, any, anybody to just comment on, on sort of what their thought process is when they get this phone call 
a 30-year-old MBA ECMO just arrested is coming. Alec or Dr. Sims, I think you guys uh, spent a lot of time in the ICUs. Uh, what do you? So when when we talk about uh, transferring these patients, I think the first question that <clears throat> we always ask is: Is this the patient that's stable enough to to be transported? Um, and so, you know, once somebody is cannulated, uh, the, the way that they were cannulated is important. Uh, were they cannulated uh, under ultrasound guidance at bedside or were they cannulated under fluoroscopic guidance in the cath lab? Um, what are the flows? How is their oxygenation? Um, all of these issues come into play to make sure that the patient is even uh, stable uh, to be transferred for uh, advanced therapies. And then you think about, um, you know, if this is a patient that could potentially recover or will need to go to advanced therapies, like like we, uh, Dr. Sims and, and Dr. Alvarez mentioned, this is probably fulminant myocarditis and she's a young patient. Um, you know, we have to think about uh, a potential venting strategy, right? We have to assess the filling pressures in the lungs. We have to make sure that the heart is uh, unloaded. Um, so this is something that will require, you know, further hemodynamic monitoring. So, um, we would probably, if the patient is stable for transfer, uh, bring her to our CCU and evaluate quickly and make that decision up front um, as far as if they need any other uh, additional support devices to try to achieve complete unloading. So, so I agree very much with uh, uh, what Alex just said there. I think, um, uh, you know, it's very concerning, you have fulminant myocarditis, but also that she's having bradycardic and ventricular tachyarrhythmias. So, when she's stable to get over uh, to your hospital, to tertiary care center, uh, this patient uh, needs to be looked at for giant cell myocarditis, needs to be looked at for sarcoid, um, and needs to be evaluated for advanced therapies, um, a durable LVAD, uh, cardiac transplantation. Depending on what the etiology is, uh, if it's something like lymphocytic myocarditis, the prognosis will be quite good <clears throat> and also not uh, potentially need immunosuppression. If this is uh, acute sarcoid or giant cell myocarditis, uh, the patient requires immune suppression, but also the chances of recovery are, are much lower. So we need to be prepping uh, the, the family uh, for that. Um, acute eosinophilic uh, myocarditis, we saw there was a very high white count, uh, much rarer, but, but still happens. So you know, wanna make sure that there's no peripheral eosinophilia. But uh, to really help differentiate this when the patient gets uh, uh, gets over, uh, she's someone who needs uh, an endomyocardial biopsy, you know, to really figure out what is going on uh, so we can decide, you know, do they need immune suppression or not? Do they need, um, what's their prognosis and the likelihood of recovery with just support? And this can be done, you know, right at the bedside uh, with echo guidance. It can be done in the cath lab with fluoroscopic guidance. Uh, but uh, should be done at a place where they, they know how to do it because there is risk involved with endomyocardial biopsy, a little bit less so if the patient's on VA ECMO support um, and needs a pathologist who can uh, really differentiate them uh, well. Uh, it's sometimes very difficult uh, to differentiate giant cell from uh, sarcoid under the microscope. Yep. Great points. Um, Rachna, you want to walk us through what happened next? Absolutely. So at this point, I think we did touch upon some of the differential diagnoses, and um, I was looking for um, a great table. I think we all agree that we're thinking about some sort of an inflammatory cardiomyopathy, and uh, the American Heart Association, um, just before we all sort of walked into COVID, the unprecedented uh, pandemic that we like to call it, 
Um, there was this document published. Uh, Dr. Sims is actually one of the authors on this document. And they have a really nice table uh, that goes over some of the differentials for inflammatory cardiomyopathies. They divide them broadly into autoimmune, toxic, and infectious cardiomyopathies. And uh, for our patients specifically, given the history, given the recent visit to the Dominican Republic, uh, we were considering um, these various differentials. So given the fact that she had um, a thrombocytopenia, um, we were thinking of maybe a dengue-related myocarditis, uh, just a genetic viral myocarditis um, in the setting of the ongoing COVID, uh, giant cell uh, myocarditis that Dr. Sims mentioned, uh, something that's important for us to know upfront because that would merit treatment as opposed to lymphocytic myocarditis, which oftentimes would recover with supportive mechanical circulatory support. Uh, or even Chagas cardiomyopathy, just given uh, the fact that she had returned from the DR. So these were some of the differentials on our mind as we were accepting this patient to our uh, unit. When she, when she presented to our CCU, we noticed that she had recurrence of slow VT. Um, she was on, she was, we tried to overdrive pace her with the, uh, the transvenous pacemaker and also had her on amiodarone as well as lidocaine to try to suppress the ventricular tachycardia. We did notice that her lactate was increasing despite us having her on VA ECMO and increasing VA ECMO speeds. So at that point, we, we decided to completely discontinue the epinephrine drip that she came to us with. Um, her CVP at that point was still high at 15. And so we, decided, we made the decision to add some IV diuresis um, to maybe try to unload her LV in addition to the mechanical support that she was already on for venting purposes. Um, so at this point, actually what surprised us really was her chest x-ray which if you, if you recall the x-ray when she first arrived to the other hospital, uh, we saw some signs of pulmonary vascular prominence and you know, congestion. But this one here shows prominent uh, opacities in both lungs. And it was actually read as being concerning for ARDS, which I don't think is completely impossible in this setting where the patient is so sick um, with the, the systemic inflammatory response going on. So this was her x-ray at this point. So both things were concerning, the lactate going up despite the mechanical circulatory support and the x-ray at this point. So if you just hold that x-ray for a second, because I think I know we've all seen this before on patients on VA ECMO. So, you know, this is a person who comes in with a VA ECMO, also has an impella CP. Um, Alec, in this situation, when you have this x-ray, what are you thinking and what is your strategy uh, to, to sort of, get around this problem. And what problem is this? What is our, your differential usually? Sure, so this is a, this is a concerning picture, uh, as you pointed out. Um, you have an impella, which theoretically should be able to vent the LV uh, and protect the lungs uh, with flows of up to three and a half liters, um, but you basically have uh, diffuse bilateral uh, interstitial uh, edema. So, you know, the question is, is this secondary to the code? You know, is this a transient uh, flash pulmonary edema that will resolve? Um, is the chest x-ray lagging a little bit behind the, the code event? Um, you have to start thinking about uh, your afterload. You know, we know that ECMO increases uh, afterload just by virtue of, of uh, the mechanics. Um, and the question is, is the afterload too high that even the impella uh, flows are insufficient to overcome uh, the, the uh, elevated SVR? And I think um, 
you'd mentioned that the patient was on epinephrine uh, at some point, so that would fit. Um, obviously, ARDS is on your differential as well. Um, and, you know, in addition to that, depending on how much heparin the patient was placed, is this, uh, you know, diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, you know, is the patient starting to bleed with the thrombocytopenia? So these are all issues that you sort of have to keep uh, in, in mind. Um, but I think, you know, what, what we would probably do is, uh, as long as the flows are okay and the maps are low, we probably re-image the chest, uh, you know, in, in four to six hours and see if it's uh, resolving. Because I think if it is, um, then it's most likely, you know, secondary to the event or something a little bit more transient. Um, if it's not, then you have to start thinking about uh, ARDS or uh, some kind of uh, diffuse hemorrhagic alveolar process. Yeah. So... You know, I think the, the one th- second I was going to take was this this concept of LV venting. So, Renee, I know we're seeing a lot of peripheral VA ECMO these days because we have the ability to do it by the bedside on crashing and burning patients. And Alec mentioned how uh, VA ECMO does not really support the heart uh, because you have two competing flows in your system, one that's coming from the peripheral arterial cannula and the other from the native ventricular circulation that go against each other you have uh, high flows and an ECMO can actually completely overpower a weak heart and you can have the aortic valve completely closed or you can have minimal pulsatility. So Renee, when you're, when you're looking at these patients and, and let's say this is a person who doesn't have any venting strategy in places only on peripheral VA ECMO, what do you think about venting and, and what kind of approaches are you thinking of to, to get out of a situation where, where you have an aortic valve that's no longer opening and you're concerned that this patient's going into really bad pulmonary edema? Yeah, those are all uh, fascinating questions, and I think uh, we've learned a lot about these, uh, the hemodynamics as, as they've been studied uh, over the past many years, especially as we uh, do more clinical trials and cardiogenic shock, and our uh, armamentarium to support these folks continues to increase we learn more and more about the physiology and the hemodynamics of these devices that are life-saving. But also, I think very importantly, as was mentioned before, you have to understand what the hemodynamic uh, implications are and the consequences are of uh, supporting the circulation with various types of devices. And I think one of the best, uh, one of the best talks that I've ever heard about this was uh, Dan Burkhoff who gave a talk on the uh, hemodynamics of various mechanical circulatory support devices are very different. And I think understanding that as critical care cardiologists uh, taking care of these folks is important um, because uh, these things can occur. And I think that when you put somebody on VA ECMO like this, like Alec mentioned, the hemodynamics are such that, you know, the, um, the, the circulation is continuous. Uh, the, the barrel receptors uh, are affected acutely. Um, the aortic valve, like you said, uh, can be um, uh, affected. Uh, you can have a north-south uh, syndrome, like you mentioned, in terms of competing circulations. All of that, uh, uh, over time, can increase the SVR, can compromise stroke volume. And I think the other important concept that others should uh, probably talk about is the fact that unloading of the left ventricle, when it's hurting, when it's ischemic, when it's uh, under a lot of stress, when the wall stress is high, when the oxygen demand of the myocardium is high, when the cellular and inflammatory uh, mechanisms and the neurohormonal mechanisms are highly activated, then unloading the left ventricle has, has been shown to have significant uh, 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 implications in terms of 
providing uh, the heart to rest and allowing it to uh, be rescued over time. So um, the strategy that you choose for venting the left ventricle, I think there's, uh, there are multiple ways of doing it. I think uh, the impella is certainly one that can be used. The balloon pump can be used. Sometimes nipride, just nipride alone sometimes uh, uh, can be used in many of these folks. Uh, and the tandem heart. So I, I think it all depends on what you have, what you're comfortable with. But I think the concept of uh, unloading the left ventricle, inventing the left ventricle in someone with VA ECMO is an important one. It'd be interesting to see what the other folks think. So, so I agree with everything that's just been said and uh, by both my colleagues and you know, can't agree more. Um, the one other thing I'd add in addition is – uh, sometimes these patients get to us where it isn't clear what's going on at first. Sometimes they're febrile. Sometimes it appears that they're septic and they've gotten a fair amount of fluid. So I think it's also important to think about, uh, do I just need diuresis? And, and a lot of times when the patient comes to us on VA ECMO and they have white out of the chest x-ray, it's, oh my goodness, uh, do I, how emergently do I need to go and, and put the, uh, uh, an LV venting mechanism in if I'm going to choose mechanical uh, is there vascular access issues that may prevent that? Well, just if you can make them significantly negative very quickly and reshoot the film, and if it's gotten much better, uh, that actually helps imply that this is just the uh, uh, the extra volume, particularly if your echocardiogram and, and your uh, A-line tracing show that the aortic valve is opening. But uh, if for a patient who you really are, are trying to recover for a patient who's, you know, just had a, a myocardial infarction and such an insult, uh, the, the venting and resting the heart um, and uh, keeping that LVEDP lower and overcoming the afterload in increase caused by the VA ECMO can be uh, just incredibly important. If I, if, I, if I can just say one more thing, Dr. Sims said something that uh, is very interesting, uh, which is many times uh, I see this in the ICUs all the time where the house staff and the fellows uh, who get a patient like this who's in shock with a high white count, a low-grade temperature, uh, they, 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 they always say the patient's septic. Um, and, I, and, and I think the important thing to remember is that acute heart failure is uh, the mediators of acute heart failure are very similar to the mediators of sepsis and SIRS. So uh, patients can be markedly basal dilated, have a temperature and a high white count, and be in severe cardiogenic shock for those mechanisms, the inflammatory component of shock. So that was a very important point. Yeah. Yeah, those were all great points. So I think our assessment was also that this was, um, this was an acute insult. We added some diuresis, stopped the ep epinephrine drip, and we wanted to proceed with mechanical support and IV diuresis at this point uh, without making many big changes to our management. Um, the next big question, which I think Dr. Sims already touched upon, was making a diagnosis. Um, since we were all thinking inflammatory cardiomyopathy, we needed to make a diagnosis. So the next question on our minds was, um, oops, sorry about that. When do we biopsy? So um, I guess we've already touched upon this. And I, again, I used the same scientific uh, statement from the AHA. Um, for this nice flow diagram that explains that our patient actually met appropriateness criteria for an endomyocardial biopsy at this point, given the fact that she was she had this unexplained acute cardiomyopathy um, requiring mechanical circulatory support, and she had developed both uh, second degree or higher heart block as well as ventricular tachycardia. So a bedside biopsy was performed with echo guidance. 
and we continued supportive care with mechanical circulatory support. Over the next couple of days, we didn't notice that her hematocrit dropped. And so uh, we had to reposition the impella at the bedside, but we continued with impella support as well as via ECMO. And on day four, the endomyocardial biopsy results returned and showed that she in fact had lymphocytic myocarditis. So at this point, you know, I'm going to ask uh, before we describe the biopsy results, what kind of timeline are you expecting in patients with fulminant myocarditis? How long do you think you're going to be on support? How long are you saying, I'll be on support, maybe I'll go to VAD, maybe I'll go to transplant? What kind of timeline do you have in your mind in these situations? And maybe I'll start with Dr. Sims and then go to Renee and Alec. Sure. So, so before I get to the point about uh, going to transplant or VAD and, and, uh, or recovery, um, I think the, the decision to biopsy them has to happen very quickly. And so you, you biopsy them, and even if it's a Friday night, even if it's the weekend, and we need at the very least the light microscopy back um, you know, later that day or the next day, uh, because you need to make a decision, does this patient need immunosuppression quickly? Because if you are going to have uh, hope of recovery, if it's you know, so lymphocytic myocarditis has a good prognosis on its own just with uh, supportive measures. But if it is uh, a giant cell myocarditis, uh, if it is sarcoid uh, or eosinophilic myocarditis, we, we need to get the immune suppression uh, on board very quickly. Uh, so you, you want to do that uh, before too much time has gone by. Uh, for lymphocytic myocarditis, uh, generally we think uh, about a week uh, we start to see recovery. So each day we're looking at the, the A-line tracing, we're looking at... Um, uh, limited echocardiography to see is there a change in um, the LV function, uh, is the aortic valve opening, is the pulse pressure uh, becoming higher, um, are we starting to get um, uh, chattering on the lines to suggest that the, the LV is uh, loading uh, a little bit more now. Um, we're, we're looking at all these things, but uh, not all lymphocytic myocarditis uh, does recover. And then once you get to that one-week point, you're really starting to get into the, the um, uh, adverse uh, events and complications of the VA ECMO, even if you're taking you know, great care uh, to, to avoid them and to manage them, such that if there's not uh, signs of uh, uh, appropriate recovery, really should be going to uh, you know, a, a more durable uh, platform. Now, you might say uh, go to something like a Centromag Bivads, which can give you up to 30 days time to, to give a little bit more time, uh, again, depending on what institution you're at uh, or uh, proceeding with a durable LVAD. Uh, but if it's um, you know, one of these other etiologies, the chances of recovery quite small and uh, even before a week's up uh, may want to uh, proceed with uh, durable mechanical support or uh, in the era of uh, the new UNOS um, uh, listing criteria, this patient on VA ECMO would be uh, status one uh, and, uh, you know, be able to get an organ very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Renee and Alec, you know, in, in light of this, when you're trying to vein support on these patients, are you veining the ECMO first? Are you veining the impella? Are you trying to support them to an impella eventually? What's your, what's your uh, strategy on these patients? If you're trying to wean support and they are recovering. Yeah, Alex, why don't you tackle that one, buddy? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, having an impella as a venting strategy is a, is a very, uh, it's a solid idea because what it 
gives you is a platform uh, that you can wean the ECMO to. Um, and I, I think, you know, in terms of bleeding complications, in terms of vascular access, uh, in terms of hemolysis and all the complications that could potentially come with ECMO, uh, trying to get uh, that support off uh, if the patient's able to tolerate it and wean them to an impella, um, I think is, is, a, is a good initial strategy. Um, and uh, once the patient is on an impella, I think that's also sort of can be stepped off uh, uh, in a gradual way. Um, so I think, you know, when considering venting strategies, that's something that uh, our group thinks about frequently, you know, do you uh, put an appella CP? Do you put a 5.0? How much support do we think they're going to need off of, uh, off of ECMO? Um, the other thing I wanted to highlight is something that Dan mentioned uh, earlier that I think is very important, and that's the, the vascular access and bleeding complications with these devices because a uh, major uh, bleed can derail uh, the best laid plans for uh, mechanical support or transplant of these patients. So, you know, when, uh, when Rachna mentioned that there was a, a hemoglobin drop or hematocrit drop, I think that's something that uh, we need to pay very close attention to. And it's possible, you know, it's secondary to the impella. So you do, you know, the housekeeping um, tasks of repositioning and seeing if that gets better. But, you know, you also have to take a look at the, uh, the ECMO access sites, you know, and have a very low threshold to CT these patients, because if you do notice a, a bleeding complication that has to be addressed uh, very, very quickly, because uh, that can get you into trouble and uh, derail the, uh, the final, you know, destination plans for these patients. Thanks. The only other thing, that, the only thing I would add to that wonderful conversation is that um, um, getting people off of ECMO sooner rather than later, I think is very important. I think uh, around the country, around the world, people uh, linger on ECMO for too long in consideration of other platforms or palliative care or other advanced therapies becomes very important, as Dr. Sims mentioned, in terms of uh, a daily assessment uh, of recovery. Uh, I trained with Ken Boffman, who uh, would always say to me, um, the sicker you are with lymphocytic myocarditis, the higher the chances that you're going to walk out of the hospital. So, um, you know, I think if you provide full support for these folks, improve the milieu, and then protect the end organs, these folks with lymphocytic myocarditis, as Dr. Sims mentioned, have a fairly good prognosis. You want to walk us through the slides and the rest of the presentation? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we have these uh, 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 histopathological slides here uh, where we clearly see a significant uh, lymphocytic infiltrate in blue. But in addition, we also see that there is significant um, damage to the myocytes, which both things put together as well as her clinical presentation goes along with fulminant lymphocytic myocarditis at this point. Um, and as we discussed, you know, given that this is lymphocytic myocarditis as opposed to some of the other uh, uh, inflammatory cardiomyopathies, the autoimmune kinds, we decided not to proceed with immunosuppression. I think Dr. Sims already touched upon this. Um, we decided to proceed with mechanical circulatory support uh, and watchful waiting for at least um, that one week mark, unless of course we noticed something um, before we made it to the one week. So this is finally the document. I've been itching to show this. Uh, so here is Dr. Sims. There's one of the authors on it. Uh, and uh, it, it's really interesting because this came out in February of, or January of 2020. And uh, our hospital converted into a COVID hospital in about March. And in the beginning, when there was talk about myocarditis, this was such a great resource because 
we were all discussing how we would treat COVID differently um, compared to some of the other inflammatory cardiomyopathies where we don't want to suppress patients with COVID-19. Um, so just uh, takes me right back to pre-COVID where I'd like to be again soon. So on day, <laughs> <laughs> so on day six, um, luckily, she, you know, her native sinus rhythm returned. We actually weaned her off impella support first. And uh, I know that Dr. Sims uh, was involved in the care of this patient. So based on the discussion, we just heard maybe someone could explain um, if this made a, makes any difference to or if you would not have done something similar. So we, we weaned off the impella support first, and then eventually the following day, rather, we weaned off her ECMO. Um, her EF had returned to normal 55%, which was really exciting. So we were able to decannulate her, started her on low doses of uh, GDMT, and about two weeks later, she was actually uh, ready to be sent home. We did send her home with the LifeWest, um, given that she had ventricular tachycardia, although in the setting of um, inflammatory cardiomyopathy, and also an implantable loop recorder, given the underlying uh, complete heart block that we had witnessed. We just wanted to make sure that this wasn't something that would come back. Um, yeah, so that's all I have. Thank you, Rajan. That's a great case. Yes. And, you know, yeah. any, nice presentation. Any great job. Any Thank last you. thoughts from the panel? Uh, this is a great case where we had recovery and patient was actually able to go home at the end of this hospitalization. Um, anyway. I think, uh, heck, I think this was Rashna, great job, uh, fantastic presentation. I think the only thing to conclude is uh, what we learned here is that um, early diagnosis and an aggressive approach to supporting the circulation in these folks is very important and establishing the diagnosis. And I think the importance of a team-based uh, approach to the care of these folks. So uh, thank you for allowing me to be part of this, Mahek. Thank you. Thank you. Alan Sims? Yeah, Rajnik, yeah, right, uh, ter terrific job uh, presenting the case and then also just walking us through uh, these yeah. salient points. And I, I really appreciate listening to uh, my co-panelists' uh, comments. I, I, I learned very much from uh, you guys uh, uh, as well. Um, I think uh, you know the question as far as the ECMO versus Impella, which one first? In, in this patient, she really recovered very quickly in that day five to six mark. And I personally believe you know ECMO just you know it's it's the highest level biventricular mechanical support, uh, respiratory support, but also the highest uh, complication adverse event profile. So to get that one out quickly, if you can, and first, uh, this patient had problems with her Impella kept moving. Uh, and uh, budding the ventricle was moving in out, so really that's led to the decision for the impella to come uh, to come out first, followed quickly by ECMO uh, the very next day. Uh, but um, uh, one, one further point, uh, you know, this patient, you know, recover their their ejection fraction, but at life vest, there's a with uh, myocarditis, there's a lot of inflammation. So even though the EF is normal, there's still inflammation. So for a period of time, uh, it's recommended, and a period of time is usually around six months or so, um, uh, is to tell these patients, you know, not to exert themselves and to really, uh, you know, be careful because there is going to be that risk of uh, uh, ventricular tachyarrhythmias. And unfortunately, I had a colleague, you know, uh, we don't like to practice medicine by anecdotes, but uh, who recovered after a huge, uh, you know, a team effort. Uh, like this to save a patient with lymphocytic myocarditis, and then they went home and they were exercising, and uh, they had a VT arrest. 
Um, so I, I think it's an important point on the day of discharge and the day before to just uh, uh, make sure that uh, the patient and the team is aware of that. But I, I can't stress enough the importance of the team, uh, the uh, heart failure cardiologist, the intensivist, the cardiac surgeon, the inter, um, uh, interventionist, uh, everyone um, looking at the patient a different way and looking at all aspects, you know, just those bleeding complications, there's a reason they cause patients to, to have increased mortality. Uh, the person doing the cannulation, the person looking at the white count and what day number a line has been left in. Uh, so having these conversations is, is so important. And uh, Mehek, uh, congratulations on, on uh, uh, this and, and uh, the heart success and uh, thank you for letting me be a part of it. Thank you for accepting and Alec. Yeah, this is a terrific case and a wonderful presentation. And uh, like Dan said, you learn uh, as much being on the, on these panels as, uh, as anybody else. Um, I guess the last thought that, that I want to offer is that uh, one of the biggest lessons that you learn in shock and MCS is that there is never an always. So, you know, we talk about uh, strategies for generic uh, uh, presentations and in this situation, that situation, but every decision is patient dependent. And uh, in this case, uh, because of the, uh, complications that the impeller was causing, they chose to take it out first. And that's exactly how you have to approach these patients with general concepts in mind, but understanding that specific therapies need to be tailored to the patient in front of you. And um, you have to be ready to sort of readjust and, and change course um, uh, depending on what's happening clinically with the patient. Um, and again, like everyone else on the panel has mentioned, the importance of the heart team and the multidisciplinary decision-making that I think uh, we've demonstrated it can really um, improve the outcomes, you know, and, and turn the tide uh, in terms of survival of these patients. So thank you for allowing me to participate. This has been uh, a terrific discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rachna, for doing the case. It was awesome. And uh, thanks, everybody, for for uh, attending and discussing this case. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Mahek. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Uh, great job. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating, as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave your suggestions for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at Heart Success Team, or you can always reach me on Twitter at CardioWell. Mm-hmm.